seconds flat. Give me up. Put it down, put it This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mile 145 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. It is time for part one of our greatest marathoners of all time, March Madness Bracket. We will tackle the men's non-Kipchoge division tonight. Phil, it's almost like the old uh, America's Cup yacht race where the entire (laughs) bracket is competing just for a position to challenge the king, who in this case Mm -hmm. is Kipchoge. But how you doing, man? What's your March Madness highlight so far? Oh, man. You got to go with Furman, of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Why not? So this past weekend is my absolute favorite weekend in all of sports. Because of all of the basketball games, well, and this year made it extra special since you came down to spend the weekend here. I thought um, that might be your highlight, getting to watch all those <laughs> games together, man. We were, were doing it live at the Gregory household. Oh, we should have just recorded there, man. But just despite all the fantastic upsets that the tournament seeing, you know, whether that's Purdue getting knocked off by Tobin of Fairleigh Dickinson. <laughs> now with Iona taking a new job already on Oh, us. that's right. Or... Yeah. Uh, Princeton that knocked off Arizona. The way that Furman won that game Thursday night was so exciting. Yeah, I would say that last 15 seconds is about as good as any I can remember. I I went through in my head games over the past decades that might compete. Mm -hmm. The Bryce Drew shot when Valpo knocked off Ole Miss. I think that was Uh 13 over a four. Uh, Jalen Suggs in the final four a couple of years ago with the half quarter uh, against UCLA for Gonzaga. Mm-hmm. I would probably put the Leitner shot in the regional final against Kentucky. I would put it above. However, just how unlikely that finish was for Furman when down four made a play and then the craziness from Virginia just throwing the ball away and Boom, hit an open man, three-point. An experienced senior that's trapped in the corner that has been in these big-time games before. There's a timeout left. All he's got to do is hold the ball, and the time runs out, or we foul, and they go make a shot, and we lose. He just chucks it to half court. We get a great turnover. After our loss to Chattanooga last year in the SoCon Championship, Mm -hmm. that was a fantastic Fantastic finish for those guys. Yeah, redemption so. for those kids. Yeah. Lost yeah. such a tough one on that half quarter last year at the SoCon final. For my money, I'd take the Princeton story just because of how good they were in both those games. Mm-hmm. And those were not just uh, fluke victories over Arizona and Missouri. They were a superior team. But right. I, I was glad to be back down in the upstate for the weekend because the, it was electric with a Furman victory. It was oh, man. A whole lot of fun. Before the bracket that we have on our greatest marathoners of all time, let's catch up on the biggest race from this past weekend. That was the New York City Half. 
under chilly, brisk conditions. Some of the world's top athletes raced from Brooklyn to Central Park. Helen O'Beary won the women's race in a course record time of 107.21. She and Sinberry Teferi broke from the pack early, and O'Beary won from the front despite her Ethiopian competitor tucking in for a large portion of the race and waiting to pounce. She looked like she had, once she reattached, she appeared to be stalking her prey, but O'Beary pulled away. A Norwegian cross-country star Caroline Grobdahl took third. It was a good showing for Des Linden in fifth as she builds toward Boston, and she was followed by Dakota Lenworm, Molly Huddle, and friend of the show, Natasha Wodak. The men set out at a measured pace with one major exception. Britt Chris Thompson absolutely blasted from the gun despite the hilly early miles and took a huge lead. He got a ton of TV time. It was great advertisement for On with him out alone in front and uh, Helen O'Beary from the On Athletic Club in front of the women's race. By about the 10K mark, a large group caught and overtook Thompson. And ultimately, Jacob Kipolimo shook off his closest challenger in the second half of the race, which was his Ugandan compatriot, Joshua Cheptegei. Guess what, Phil? You can run World Cross in Australia, then back up with a win at one of the world's top road races. And these two didn't just run cross. They went one and three at Bathurst last month. Oof. I'm up on Kiplimo. I think he is going to be, well, obviously with these performances, kind of an up and coming star. But mm-hmm. I've seen some videos of him running. I didn't watch the race, but just of him in other races. And he looked so smooth and fluid. It's impressive to watch. And with that last, what, mile 12 to 13, where he dropped a 419 and just yeah. ran away from his competitors, that was an impressive performance from him. It was stunning. Yeah, Kiplibo at, I believe, only 22 is, mm-hmm. uh, he's beyond a, a future star. He's already there, and it'll be fun to see what he can do over perhaps a decade plus. Also, a good reminder of why people come to us for insights, because as always, the response is, I didn't watch it, but I accessed a highlight video that anyone else could have seen as well. <laughs> I'm here for the hot takes, right? Yes, you are. All right, buddy. Uh, the top American was Ben True in fourth. And let's just admit, Phil, that we're openly rooting for this guy. Uh, he has been so close to the Olympics. So oh, I love this times. guy. Yeah, he was a... Well, with the range from the 5K to the 10K and moving up to the marathon over the past couple of years and mm-hmm. still fighting for sponsorships these past couple of years, but putting in world-class performances. Yeah, that was my next point. He's a 1302 5K guy on the track pre-Super Spikes. You mentioned mm-hmm. from Saucony to Unsponsored to Asics, uh, a lot of his career training on his own. He has run cross-country as well as any American of his generation. And on Sunday morning, he outkicked Ed Chesarek and Andrew Butchert. Is there a chance this is a prelude to an Olympic marathon team appearance, Phil? Ooh. Yeah, he, he is certainly in contention with the guys he's raced against there and with his potential. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've kind of gone through who we in previous episodes who we think might be you know on the short list to qualify, but true, it has to be up there. Even though he's, what, 38 years old or so? Yeah, so 
two potential drawbacks I see. One, I'm not sure the course in Orlando will best suit him. We'll see on that. Uh, he's done his best work in a number of races that maybe have been in cooler conditions, although that mm -hmm. could happen at Orlando that time of year, but there's also the chance it could be hot. Uh, I think his cross-country pedigree makes him really strong over hills, mm -hmm. and we probably don't see a ton of that in Orlando. And the, the only other thing, a point of concern is, there's just not a lot of marathon experience here. And so right. a nice debut at New York a year and a half ago, he couldn't run it this year because of sickness. And I believe he is, he's tuning up for Boston, correct? Mm -hmm. he, he was on that. I believe so. Yeah. He was on that elite list. So hopefully we get to see him there. Uh, Reed Fisher was eighth multi-time guest of the show. Frank Lara was ninth. And it was, I thought, a generally good day for the Americans. Quickly, I must touch on the second biggest race of the weekend. How about our crew of seconds flat dads at the Asheville Marathon, Phil? Oh, what a fantastic performance from those guys. Yeah, I got to tell you, it was a it was a tough race. The conditions uh -huh. and course were both suboptimal. I, I would guess it was about 30 at the start, but really windy. Okay. Uh, I would just well, because you're going up and down the French Brawl, so you're probably getting some wind coming yeah. off the water there. And yeah, it was it was a generally windy day, plus being along the water and maybe a little more exposed than I had mm -hmm. expected that the course to be. I think both I and the folks who ran would describe it as spectator friendly, but maybe not so much racer friendly. Yep. Um, I was in Carrier Park most of the morning and able to see the guys pass four times there and then get to the finish line as well. So that was really great. Five times to view them and also hand off hydration and nutrition as needed. Uh, so despite those conditions, those fellas captured a bunch of sub threes and particularly hats off to our boy, Benjamin, the coffee roasting kid from due South came off strep throat and executed a beautiful race for his first sub three and a massive new personal best. So ah, congrats to him. That was fantastic. Our, our guy, Josh Riley, who's been chasing three for years, had, had a bunch of bonks. He, he took it to 259.40 or something and came storming through the finish. So it was just a, a wonderful day. And so I don't know that any of us will be back at the Asheville Marathon <laughs> next year. Uh, if I am, I will once again be spectating. I will not be running. Uh -huh. but Passing out bottles and jokes. Yeah, it, maybe just to random strangers. It was probably a one and done marathon experience <laughs> for those guys, but probably worth doing once, particularly given how well they ran. At Tobacco Road was also this weekend in the region, Phil. Uh, I know you wanted to uh, add a little bit of uh, thoughts there. Yeah, and, and shout out to to friend of the show, Randy Hutchinson, on that one, joining the sub three crowd as well. He ran 258.49, which mm. he's been chasing that sub three for, I want to say, eight or 10 years or wow. so. And just came off of uh, Rocket City back in December running 308. So knocking 10 minutes off. I want to turn around a couple months. Um, now really excited for him to get that notch in his belt. And also there, uh, another nice performance from one of our athletes, Ford, who got his uh, Boston qualifying time on Sunday morning as well. I've said a lot of good things about that race and it's half marathon companion uh, over several episodes here. And I, I look forward to you catching up with Randy and hearing more about his thoughts on the course. Cause yeah. I do have my eye on something. I shouldn't even say this on the podcast because then it, it gets out to our dozens, if not scores of listeners. <laughs> There's a 
big master's purse there. And I got my eye on that for next year. I might make well, an you're appearance. You're entering that division pretty soon, man. Yeah, so. I, might, I might go to Tobacco Road for a little money grab, but we'll see. <laughs> All right, Phil, let's shift now to a couple new shoes from Hoka that we've been uh, eagerly anticipating getting on our feet and reviewing for the audience. You've been running in the Clifton 9. I've gotten mm-hmm. a little taste of the Clifton 9 as well. And I have first impressions from the Rocket X2. Before I turn it over to you for the Clifton review, let me give the people the shoe specs. Hoka's classic daily trainer comes in at just under nine ounces this year in the men's sample size nine. It's the typical Clifton five millimeter heel to toe drop. And despite adding three millimeters of stack, it is no heavier than last year's version. So that's a nice plus. It's a new foam with a softer feel, and that comes with also a slightly wider, more voluminous upper for a more accommodating fit. Phil, what have been your thoughts? This has been the Clifton I have been waiting for since probably version three. Mm. Um, It is, I have been very, very pleased with it. It's nothing flashy. It is nothing terribly exciting, but it is just reliable. You know, for me, where I want this shoe to fit in my rotation is something that's a a comfortable, easy day recovery run shoe where I can just go out, not really push the pace, but let things roll if if I'm sore or feeling beat up, but, you know, get a few miles in to something that is kind of a moderate, medium, long run shoe. And to me, this, this shoe checks that box that this is probably my fourth Clifton I've been in. And and from a ride perspective, it is very similar to all the others where this really hits at home for me is in the fit and that the, the previous models, and this is only an issue I have on my right foot, but my big toe would rub in the forefoot. So while those shoes will be comfortable for 30 to 45 minutes, the previous models beyond that would really start to work on a blister and just get really uncomfortable. Whereas with this new fit, you know, I've taken them out for hour, hour 15. I would be comfortable taking it out to two hours or so, mm-hmm. just in terms of how that upper fits. And as well from the, and you mentioned the, the heel to toe offset being five millimeters. To me, it rides a little bit higher just because of that aggressive forefoot rocker that Hoka is known for. You know, so even for those that have like Achilles issues or calf issues, that, that forefoot rocker negates some of that uh, mm-hmm. heel-toe offset. And even though there's a little bit more stack to this shoe, it does not feel mushy. I would say it's comfortably soft, but not overly so. And that there's some nice responsiveness to it. There's some nice bounce to it. So you're not hitting and sinking in, but there's a, a little bounce back to it. Certainly not anything like we would see out of you know, some of the super foams, like in the Super Blast or the Nike Invincible or what have you, but just a nice, comfortable comfortable ride for a solid daily trainer you say clifton three and and i get pretty excited because that was back when <laughs> I, I loved the shoe as well those early iterations uh two points i'll add uh, you're right with addressing the meta rocker that does help offload that impact at the achilles uh, noticeably <laughs> so that if you are someone who has concerns about wearing a, a low drop shoe because of potential stress on the calf and Achilles, I think those concerns are alleviated to a degree in this shoe. 
And then Derek from Hoka, who was out with, with our team for the Rocket X demo this weekend when I was able to wear that shoe. He, he really had a nice description of this newest version of the Clifton. It's not a dramatic overhaul. And, and Phil, you mm-hmm. hit those points. It's not a dramatic overhaul, but it's just, it's like a plus one in every area of the shoe. Yep. And that adds up to make it substantially better. It's a little softer. It fits a little wider. It hits all those boxes just a touch better than it did the past few years. And it makes mm-hmm. it, I, I believe, and, and I, the market is bearing this out by what I'm seeing in sales, those little things do make it a significantly improved shoe. Yes. Yeah. And and for me, it's it's not something I necessarily get excited about putting on, you know, like I do in the Super Blast or even like the endorphin speeds for a long run or for a workout. But as a reliable, stable, comfortable, just daily mileage trainer, it's very enjoyable. Okay. On to the freshly released Rocket X2. The short summation here is Hoka finally has a super shoe. I've been open in saying the Carbon X and Rocket X were at the bottom of the modern racing shoe markets. Now Hoka brings something competitive. The Rocket X2 is a significant upgrade with a really nice underfoot feel. I took it for a 14-ish mile medium long run this weekend. And the farther I went, the more I enjoyed the shoe, Phil. Nice. The, the route was circuitous, and the shoe handled the turns and cornering well. And we know that can be an area of instability for some of mm-hmm. these high-stack super shoes. Uh, so in that way, it feels like it rides closer to the ground in the way that, say, the uh, New Balance, uh, what was the RC Elite and mm-hmm. has now become the Super Comp Elite. Hoka employs a Piba foam, and it proves that the foam is the magic, not just the plate, because this is such a superior ride to the previous iteration, the Rocket X1. The foam is softer above the plate than below. We see some of the super shoes going the opposite direction with that in an effort to that firmer foam right below the foot kind of deadening the feel or dampening the feel Mm -hmm. of the plate under your foot. But I actually like that softer feel right beneath my foot. It's not as soft as the fuel cell stuff from New Balance, but uh, to put it on the spectrum, certainly softer than the Flight Foam Turbo from Asics, which I like a lot, Mm -hmm. but it's it's, it's softer. Uh, The sample size weight here... Is a very competitive 7.2 ounces. And like the Clifton, you have a five mil offset. In sum, from my first impressions, I'm not sure if this is the best racer, but I know it stacks up well for long and or fast sessions. It's going to have an audience, I believe, that picks this as a racer. It will also have an audience that chooses it as the fastest workout option and long workout option. Price tag is $250, so right in line with these other shoes. That is just now releasing, but at least they're in the mix. You know, if if you put this next to, let's just as an example, say the the Saucony Endorphin Pro, Mm -hmm. their newest iteration of that shoe, some people are going to pick the Hoka. And I think- Deservedly, sh- deservedly sh- so, and I enjoyed the shoe. 
I have not spent as much time in the Clifton as you, Phil. Uh, I, I do hope to put more miles in it, but it, again, from a first impression standpoint, I, I see the things you're remarking on and I just have general agreement that this is an improvement from the previous iterations on both of these shoes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that Clifton men's and women's is, of course, available at Columbus Running Company and ColumbusRunning.com. Now, Phil, let's go to the madness. I got some issues with the committee. <laughs> <laughs> the committee of one. I am stoked for this. I love the basketball tournament, like you said, but I never fill out a bracket. I know you do. I know your wife is just beating the crap out of you with her bracket because she's because riding she high Tennessee on Tennessee. It all, so I'm not I, worried about it. I'll tell you what, if they keep in this thing, she's got you. Uh, <laughs> but I don't fill out the bracket because I just want to enjoy the action. No concern as to who wins. Just watch good basketball. But in the hypothetical world of marathon brackets, I am all in. <laughs> uh, let me give you the background on what we're doing here. The selection committee, that's me, has picked a Sweet 16 to compete in four regions. Uh, those regions are hosted by four of the marathon majors, Tokyo, New York City, Boston, and London. We are assuming the athletes placed in those regions would be competing head-to-head -head on those respective courses. All races are unpaced. This is traditional road racing. All runners have access to super shoes if they choose to use them. And any convicted dopers, I'm sure we have suspicions about some, and, mm -hmm. and again, next week when we do the women, we might there as well but any convicted dopers only were removed from consideration. We're over to emulate the NCAA style bracket. We tried to represent different areas of the world, much like the basketball tournament includes auto bids for mid-majors like Furman from the Southern Conference gets to represent that region. So we have runners from all the continents represented in this 16-team bracket. I then seeded the runners. So we are one to four in each region. Let's learn a little bit about the history of marathon. I think there's so much great stuff here that might be new to some listeners. You can really learn about the history of the sport and we'll laugh a little along the way in doing it as we debate who is the greatest. So Phil, any questions or are you ready to unveil the bracket? Uh, I'm ready. Okay. I'm just excited to see how much better my picks are than yours though i am certain that there will be uh, some areas of disagreement and i look <laughs> forward to educating you on the history of the event when we get to that point so this is the non-kipchoge division greatest marathoners of all time the 16 top men this week we will do women in the next edition they are on the bracket. Let's go ahead and start where we would put the top left. This is the Tokyo bracket in the top left. Phil, do you want to unveil the matchups? And then I will give a little uh, background on the competitors. You want to go with that first matchup, the 1v4 in Tokyo? Yeah, let's see that. And then also, if you would, talk a little bit about just the specifics of the course as well. Mm, um, yeah, and how that might influence our, our, our choices here. Thank you for um, adding that. That's great. Yeah, let's do it, buddy. So in the first seed of the Tokyo bracket is Bebe Bakila. 
out of Ethiopia, going up against the fourth seed, Steve Monaghetti, out of Australia. Abebe Bekela, who was in the running for the number one overall seed. Let's go through the tournament resume. <laughs> gold at Rome, 1960. Backed it up with gold at Tokyo in 1964. Back-to-back Olympic golds. And he did both in world record time. And let's rewind the clock to Rome, what was now... The pre-Super Shoe era. Well, 63 years ago. We were so pre-Super Shoes. Guy just did it barefoot. (laughs) Running running through the streets of Rome. There are extensive segments of this race that are available on YouTube in videos from the Olympic Channel. This was an evening race, so we came through in darkness with like torches lighting the course near the end as we got Mm -hmm. to the Colosseum. Just a fantastic scene. He is also certainly the godfather of East African marathoning. The influx of East African runners we've seen over past decades starts here. Career shortened by injury prior to the 68 Olympic Games, and and sadly, he was later paralyzed in a car wreck. Bikila finished fifth in his only trip to Boston. Of course, he ran in an era, era, excuse me, before many of the marathon majors of today even existed. Mm -hmm. He will stack up against our boy Mona, Steve Monaghetti, 1994 Commonwealth Games gold medalist. That same year, he was your champion at Tokyo. So does mm-hmm. the horse play to his strengths? 1990, he won a silver at the Com Games. 1997, a world champs bronze. He also won Berlin in 90. 208. So he knows how to race on these flat courses. Yes, he does. 208.16. That's a quick time at Berlin. Also undoubtedly has the best eponymous workout session of anyone on this list. He edges out Deke's quarters with the Mona Fartlek. Uh, I did that just this past week. When you got a workout named after you, you know Uh you're good. So Tokyo, flat, fast. That seems like it would help Steve Monaghetti. Do you want to make the first pick? I came so close to picking the upset pick, mm. but I'm going to go with Bikila, who I would consider kind of the godfather of modern, the modern marathon era. Mm. You're setting the, the world record at the Tokyo Olympics in 64, hearkening the dawn of East African dominance at the 60 Olympics. You know, to what Frank Shorter is to American distance running, Bikila is to East African distance running, despite how tightly Mona stacks up having won Tokyo and for his durability of having set the 5K world record in the 60-year-old age bracket <laughs> just yeah. a few weeks ago. Yeah. The fact that Bakila won those 64 Olympics only six weeks after having his appendix removed, I think he's going to be tough on this on this Tokyo course. So I'm moving Bakila forward survive in advance to the elite eight i am going to get my appendix removed as part of my next taper in an effort to uh, (laughs) emulate his success i will take bakila as well closer than the experts think you made a great argument for how good mono is on those flat fast courses but uh, bakila did that as well and Mm -hmm. in his time more dominant so that's our first winner Let's move to the 2-3 matchup in the Tokyo region. Phil, who do we have there? So this one we have Sammy Wanjiru matching up 
against Derek Clayton. Mm. Sammy Juan Giru, the legendary Kenyan. He was your 08 Olympic champion. Uh, he set an Olympic record time there, which still stands. And he was the youngest Olympic champion in nearly 80 years. He is a two-time champion at Chicago, including 2010 in one of the greatest comebacks ever, which is the sound clip and part of our introduction to the show. He's your 09 London champ. He won at Fukuoka in his 07 debut. And before we go on, we're going to mention Fukuoka multiple times. This is still a really, really, really great race. It might not be in the World Marathon Majors, but it is one of the best races in the world. And there was a time when it was the premier marathon in the world. Mm -hmm. Also, we didn't base this on stuff outside of the marathon, but remember, he had a half marathon PB in his day of 58.33, and that was more than a decade ago. Well, in 2008, he gave an interview saying he'd break two hours in the next five years. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see that. He didn't uh, have those five years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sadly, he, he did not. But Sammy Wanjiro, the, the Kenyan, is your number two seed. And he goes up against Derek Clayton. Derek Clayton was the first man under 210. I did that at Fukuoka in 1967. And his 208.33 PB at Antwerp in 69 was the world best time all the way until 1981. Mm-hmm. He held the world record for a considerable, considerable amount of time, the longest in the modern era. Just think about that. He ran 208.33 50-plus years ago, and that stacks yep. up still today. However often injured, Clayton may go down as the hardest trainer in marathon history and look through some of the training logs on Derek Clayton and just see the number of times in a week when you see like 10 miles hard or like 16 K in his case, hard, Mm -hmm. which just translated to all out, just run it as hard as you could. And that was like the second run of a double. And he did the same thing the next day. It's, (laughs) it's craziness, but the length of time that that world record stood, how quick he was at the time, He's going to put up a fight here. Who do you got in the two, three in Tokyo, Phil? So this was a tough one because on the surface, my first pick would be Wanjiro. I think what gets him is he goes to Tokyo, has a few too many drinks the night before, uh, like what eventually led to his downfall in 2009. And then Derek Clayton just destroys him. (laughs) Oh, God. Wow, that was dark. So you're taking Derek Clayton. I right. I've got to I've got to mark your picks down on my bracket too, so I know how we match up. Okay. So you got Derek Clayton. I'm going to go the other direction, and I think Sammy Wanjiru wins, and it's a commanding victory. Okay. I, I now have Wanjiru versus Bakila in the final at Tokyo. Do you want to finish up Tokyo in here and send somebody to the final four? Or do you want to go to the next bracket? Yeah, let's finish out this Tokyo while we're still talking about this course. And Okay, uh, so uh, you have Bakila and Derek Clayton. Who's going to be your winner in the Tokyo region in that head-to-head? I'm going to stick with Bakila. Okay. Uh, he's the first seed coming out of this bracket, but I think on that course with his skills, you know, he ran 212 in 64. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to take him over, over Clayton. I am going with the man you bounced in the first round. I have Sammy Wanjiru. Ooh, okay. I, I see this as a little bit of an upset, sneaky little upset. He is maybe the greatest competitor we ever saw <laughs> at the marathon distance. 
I wish we could have seen him continue to compete deep into his career. Yeah, absolutely. I have Sammy Wanjiru winning my Tokyo bracket. Okay. okay. All right, let's go bottom left. We're headed to New York City now. So course changes a little bit now. We're mm-hmm. going to see the bridges. We're going to see some hills late as we head towards Central Park. That long, straight stretch as you cross into Manhattan, flat, place to make a move. The crowd's loud. It's electric in the city. Who do we have in the 1-4 matchup there, Phil? The 1-4 matchup, we got Frank Shorter, the Mm -hmm. godfather of American distance running, going up against Jeffrey Mutai. Okay. Number one seed is Frank Shorter. He won gold at the 72 Olympics and silver in 76. We have every reason to think he should have won gold in Mm -hmm. 76 as well, given information that came out later about the East German drug program. He had four wins at Fukuoka when it was at its height. He is the only American with two marathon medals at the Olympics. He also has a win at the elite-only Lake Biwa Marathon in Japan and a 210 personal best. Up against Jeffrey Mutai, who caught a day at Boston in 2011 Mm -hmm. on that 50-degree day with a little bit of a tailwind when Ryan Hall went out and went bonkers. Uh We got a course record from Jeffrey Mutai that day of 2.03.02, which still stands. It was at the time the fastest time in the world. But remember, because of the point-to-point nature of the course at Boston, it is not presently world record eligible. He also won twice at New York City. He's got a Berlin victory to his name as well. Shorter v. Mutai, who you got, Phil? Oh, this is going to be a homer pick. I would say Frank Shorter. Mm-hmm. Partly because of those two Olympic medals, partly because of what he has done for American distance running culturally. You know, he moved to Gainesville to go to law school and turned that into a distance running mecca mm-hmm. with Jack Batchelor and Jeff Galloway. Then he moves to Boulder and popularizes altitude training and has essentially helped turn that into the endurance mecca there as well. He's, like you said, won Fukuoka four times. That is a championship caliber race. That is mm-hmm. you know, what Boston is to the amateur runner. Fukuoka used to be to the professional runner. That's right. An elite only, an elite only race. So even though Mutai's run faster times, he has several major marathon victories. Uh, I'm going with the longevity of Frank Shorter and the old man's strength. Yeah. <laughs> the, that Gainesville scene is, of course, the inspiration for the epic read, uh, Once a Runner. I don't think this is a homer pick at all. I think it's the smart pick. You have mm-hmm. picked, you've picked a winner, Phil. The one thing Jeffrey Mutai has on Frank Shorter is that 203 personal best. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we're 40 years apart in when they were at their best and, and comparing those eras in time terms is so difficult, but the lengthy number of accolades that shorter has to his career, I'm going to take him as well. So let's move to the two, three matchup then also at New York city. Who's there. So here we got Paul Tergat out of Kenya going up against Toshihiko Seiko out of mm. Japan. This is a fun matchup, Phil. I uh, this was a tough pick for me. It these is two, a tough. These two three seedings were uh, were challenging. Some might say the committee did its job well. 
So Paul Turgot, the first Kenyan world record holder, a two-time world half marathon champion. He has wins at Berlin and New York City of uh, one of the all-time great cross-country runners. I, I go across six times. Right. I do factor that in more than his track success, uh, in particular, mm-hmm. just because this is at New York City. So uh, I think that's going to be helpful for him in this race. He was the first man under 205. And he's got a a pair of second place finishes at London and Chicago. On to Seiko, four wins at Fukuoka, two Bostons, including Mm -hmm. what was a course record at the time. In 86, he got both London and Chicago with a 208 personal best there. He was unbeaten from late 79 through 83. On the road. Won something like eight international marathons. Yeah, that's that's a sizable chunk of victories. Uh, he also set uh, in a 30k race, set the 25k and 30k record. So we got 25k in route, and I know those are off distances, but those were world records for 30 years. So mm-hmm. ahead of his time there. Here's what tip this tips the scales, and this is okay. why I'll go ahead and give you my pick. I'm taking. Let's oh, your pick. I'm taking Seiko in what I really think was a toss-up, but he just has a better marathon career. Turgot might have been the better uh, all-around runner. I don't think there's much debate to that. And But Seiko is very traditional Japanese in his emphasis on the marathon. But in, mm-hmm. a co- in a coin flip, you always go with the guy who says this quote, the marathon is my only girlfriend. <laughs> I give her everything I have. I feel Se- like that quote could come from you. Frankly, that is so true. <laughs> Seiko moves on to the round of eight. Who you got, Philly? I love that quote out of him. I'm going to go again with Paul Turgot because he held the world record for, well, he said it in 2003. Gabriel Selassie broke it and then apologized to him. As you should. But when you have Gabriel Selassie apologizing to you <laughs> for beating your time, I'm going to pick Turgot. Yeah, that's a good pick. It, it really was a coin toss room, but I could mm-hmm. certainly see Paul Turgot moving on. Okay, so you have Shorter v. Turgot. I have Frank Shorter v. Tashihiko Seiko, who is your New York City bracket champion. Ooh, let's go with purely on times here, Paul Turgot. I want to pick Shorter, but with the strength that Turgot has running cross country, I think that's going to carry him over those uh, bridges in New York. Right. But I, I do think shorter matches that in his, some of the marathon courses where he was successful, uh-huh. but it, it's a fair point. I, I of course had Turgot getting upset in round one. So I, mm-hmm. I have a different scenario here with shorter and Seiko. I'm going to pick Frank shorter and it's, it's about the body of work he did uh, yep. between Olympics and the big wins at Fukuoka. This was a this is a good bracket though. There's three, oh. three really really good runners here. So I have Frank Shorter uh, meeting Sammy Wanjiru in the final four. You have a baby Bakela meeting Paul Turgot. So I like that we're not in sync. Let's move to the top right to Boston. Point to point course, downhill early, then of course the big hills through Newton, and then that gentle last 10k downhill. Toward the Sitgo sign, Hereford, Boylston, 
Beautiful. It's almost that time of year. It's next month. Oh, it's Boston. coming soon. Less than a hundred days out. No, Ooh, less than a month out. way less than a hundred days, Phil. I need to work on those math skills. This guy knows his calendar. Let's uh, do the <laughs> one versus four matchup in the top right, Phil. Who's there? So, and the one scene we got Haile Gebrselassie out of Ethiopia going against Ronaldo da Costa out of Brazil. Geb's your number one seed overall. He is the former world record holder and first man sub 204. Four wins at Berlin, three at Dubai, one at Fukuoka. And of course, on the short list of the greatest track runners ever. Uh, that's a very mm-hmm. short list that he's on. Up against four seeded uh, Ronaldo da Costa, who was the world record holder in 1998 and 99. He was the first man to cross 40K. In under two hours in a marathon. Interesting tidbit. Uh, he has a win at Berlin, and he's representing South America in the bracket. I could not put Daniel Donashimento in, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, the best thing I could do was the Brazilian da Costa. Who are you taking over the hill at Boston? We're going to go with because I feel like da Costa is kind of a mid-major. I won the conference, got into the tournament. Yeah. He's got a decent body of work. Of course, he did hold the world record for a couple of years there. But with the track speed that Geber Selassie has, he wins this one hands down. Yeah, DaCosta's kind of a UNC Asheville overmatched here. I got highly moving on as well. 2-3 matchup in Boston. Phil, what do we got? So here we have Robert Chariot going against Bill Rogers. Boston yeah. Billy. Chariot is the four-time Boston champion on a course that he knows well. He did uh, have a course record there for a while that he set in 07. He also won at Chicago and was second at New York, but he's all, he's going up against a guy who knows this course well also. <laughs> as you said, he's got Boston in his nickname, Billy Rogers, who as well has four wins at Boston. Mm-hmm. Compliments that with four straight wins at New York City. And his 209 at 79 Boston was an American record. This is a good matchup of Boston champs. Oh, of course, the best. The committee did a fantastic job on this pick. Yeah, yep. They deserve a raise. (laughs) Who's the winner? Let's go with Boston Billy. So not only did he win Boston four times, in that same time frame, he also won New York. Mm. Uh, So just a dominant five-year stretch there. He's run 59 total marathons, 28 of which were under 215. This man knows how to race. Yeah, that's, that's a good pick. I'm going to second that pick. Bill Rogers moves on the three seed in a slight upset. You know, in the 70s, in the early and mid-70s, there were a number of years where track and field news ranked Frank Shorter as the number one marathoner in the world. In the late 70s, there were a number of years where it ranked Bill Rogers as the number one marathoner mm-hmm. in the world. That means Rogers is moving on in both of our brackets. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in sync here in the Boston bracket. We have Haile Gebre Selassie and Bill Rogers on the Boston course. Phil, what happens in this showdown? Boston Billy knows his way over the Newton Hills, wears out the track speed of Haile, and takes the upset into the final four. Mm, right. A three seed moving into the final four. Great pick. It's a Cinderella Phil. pick. Here's how I see this playing out. I've envisioned this race many times, whole <laughs> dark, lonely nights. The Newton Hills are critical, as you said. Billy's going to make that early move. It's going to be uh, the classic Bill Squires move. His, uh, the old Greater Boston Track Club coach through the hills in Newton. Haile Gebrselassie just has more upside. The, the, the track 
comparison between these two. And I know times are not fair, but times within mm-hmm. their era, it's just not even close, right? It, it is okay. a, a, such a significant difference. Gebra Selassie is just going to tuck in while Bill Rogers makes that move. It's going to play out like Salazar Beardsley at the Duel in the Sun, except in this case, Rogers out of heartbreak surges hard on those downhills and just begins to rip it from five plus miles out. But Gebra Selassie's got enough to hang on, and then he's got the track speed and the final mile to, to take it away. I can't believe how in depth I have described a race that never actually <laughs> happened. I, I want to see this race happen. It's like we were there. Highly Gebra, <laughs> excuse me, highly Gebra Selassie is moving on out of my Boston bracket. And that leads us to the final bracket. That is London, flat, fast course. Who's the one for there, Phil? Uh, and the one team we got, Kenanisa Bekele, going up against the four seed of Alberta Salazar. Okay. Kenanisa Bekele is a two-time Berlin champion. He also has a third there. He has a second and third at London, a first at Paris, a PR of 201.41, which makes him the second fastest man ever. And he's in that very short list discussion with Haile Gebre Selassie as arguably the greatest distance runner ever, considering mm-hmm. Cross country and track, and he is as well the Masters world record holder in the marathon, and that stacks him up against American Alberto Salazar. He won three consecutive New York cities and 82 Boston, as we mentioned in the famous Duel in the Sun, 208, 13 personal best, and known as one of the all-time great competitors. He is going to fight and claw with all he has at London. Who wins, though, Phil? This is an easy choice for me. The one okay. seed's moving on. Bekele's yep. moving forward. Salazar had some great wins, but this was over a relatively short time period mm-hmm. uh, until he came back in 94 and won Comrades uh, before finally retiring and going into to coaching. So despite the competition that Salazar gives Bekele, I think Bekele easily moves on here. And I think the course helps Bekele as well. Mm-hmm. Salazar is going to go out with him. There's no question. Yep. He's going to hang oh, on he's as, hang long on as, long as he, as he can. can. That's right. But that flat, fast London course. And knowing that the Salazar did have good track speed, but he's going to benefit more from a maybe Boston or New York City type race. And mm-hmm. Bekele is, is going to enjoy the rhythm of this course. So Bekele moves on for me as well. That leads to the 2-3 matchup. I think this is the best first-round matchup on the board. This is the must-see event of the first round in our final first-round pairing. Who's there? This reminds me of our matchup back at CIM this past December. Except we both flopped, and these guys are all-time legends. But yeah, I'll I'll continue this tale in a moment. But Steve Jones going up against uh, Deke. Rob DiCostello. This, I'm going to give you the parallel. It's not you and me at CIM. Here's what it is. Since this is March Madness, let's use a March Madness analogy. Nearly 50 years ago, the 1974 ACC Championship at Greensboro Coliseum, the Maryland Terps, the North Carolina State Wolfpack, they're both in the top five in the country. But this is a time when only the auto bid from a conference got in. So if you had a conference tournament, it was your conference tournament champion. If you didn't, it was your regular season champion. There were no at-large bids. The tournament was much smaller then. North Carolina State went on to win the national championship. 
but first had to squeak by Maryland in overtime. I think it was like 103 to 100. The stars on the court that day, this is David Thompson at his peak for North Carolina State. Tom Burleson's on the floor. Uh, Lynn Elmore, John Lucas, Lefty Drizel is coaching at Maryland at the time. Just uh, an all-time battle. And I feel the same way here in that either one of these guys could win this race and go mm-hmm. on, could go deep, could go to the finals. Let's give you the breakdown. You heard a little bit about Steve Jones and his training and accomplishments from Andy Jones in our episode a couple of weeks ago on marathon physiology. Steve Jones has two wins at Chicago, one at New York, one at London, a second at Boston. Uh, That's all between 1984 and 1988. He set a world record at Chicago in 84, then course records at London and Chicago in 85. Up against him, the Australian star Rob DiCastella, who won gold at the 83 World Championships. He won the 82 and 86 Commonwealth Games gold. He was your Rotterdam champ in 83. Won Fukuoka in 81 in a world record 208.18. He then ran 207.51 at 86 Boston for the victory. That was the Aussie national record until this year. Mm -hmm. Until what? Back in uh, January. That was Fukuoka this year, Brett Robinson. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a 36-plus year national record. And how about setting it at Boston, bringing that time mm-hmm. down by another 30 seconds to 207.51? Deke, Steve Jones, who's it going to be, Phil? On this course, I'm going with Jonesy. Mm. You know, when he won in 85, he said he didn't even train for the race. And then in the middle of the race, he had to stop and poop. That is true. If you know the background of this story, that when he says he didn't train for it, do you, do you know more of the story, Phil? Enlightenment. He was heavy into 10K training at the time. Mm-hmm. He he did not really like use a traditional taper because he had a short training block into London. Felt like he just kept getting faster every week. So he just continued to hammer the whole way in leading up to it. It was a super short block. It wasn't really a true marathon block. And this is part of what led to him feeling like he did his best work when he was really just training for 10Ks and then adding a long run. And there's some truth to the effectiveness of that. However, you could also say in, say, the 90s in the United States, we went way too far into that direction and mm-hmm. just made yep. marathon training, 10K training. He had a whole bunch of lifetime miles, you have to remember, and a whole bunch of long runs, good marathons under his legs. So you take Jones on the London course, you give him the edge. This this was tough for me. I, I really yeah. struggled with this. And I... I again, considered either of these guys potential champions with the right matchups. I actually originally picked Steve Jones, and this was the only one that I went back and changed. I took Rob DiCastella to win, and the reason is the body of his work over time, his longevity in an era in which guys didn't have much longevity because they didn't have the shoes. They they were so beat up. If you don't know Rob DiCastella, I recommend listening to a fantastic interview with him. He was on a a program called For the Kudos last fall. And one of the co-hosts there is 
Brett Robinson, who has now taken that Australian national record from Deke. And Deke goes through his his training, his racing. It's just fantastic. You'll really get a great understanding of a guy that maybe Americans of this generation have forgotten a little just how good he was. Quickly here before we move on to the to the second round in this region, Andy Jones talked about just how hard Steve Jones trained. You know, there were no easy days to him. A, a tempo run was an easy day and there were- While still working full-time. Absolutely, working for the uh, Royal Air Force, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of reps, but not in like a track sense that a lot of two minute, three minute, five minute reps, that kind of stuff. A lot of them on grass, which probably helped him hang on and survive all that work a little bit easier. To give you a brief overview of Rob DeCostella's week, a guy who consistently ran about 125 miles a week, Monday and Friday were his easy days. Those easy days were doubles that were essentially 16 kilometers and 10 kilometers. He might do one, you know, flip them morning and evening, but those were the runs. So you're looking at 10 miles and six miles on those easy days. Tuesday was warm up tempo to a hill for a hill session. Wednesday, midweek, medium, long run was 30K. Then he came back and doubled off of that. So that's 18 plus miles and then a double. That led to Thursday into Deke's quarters, the 8 by 400, which he describes having done it uh, just hard. It was probably about 3K pace uh, with a float for 200 in between, famous workout. And then over the weekend, you did 35K hard over hills Mm -hmm. on a Sunday. He put in some serious efforts himself. There's a reason that that uh, record lasted so long. And it says something that that training and the number of good races he had as a sign of his longevity, just imagine what a guy like that might do, how much mileage and hard effort he could put in in the Super Shoe era. I have Rob DiCostello up against Kenanisa Bekele. You have Steve Jones up against Kenanisa Bekele. Who do you have moving on to the final four, Phil? As much as I would like to pick Steve Jones just for being such a hard man. I got to go with Bekele in this matchup. He was a hard man. You're right. There's no question about that. <laughs> I'm going to take Deke and it's a simple Ooh. reason. Bekele's inconsistency. This is not a track race. Okay. It's a road marathon. You got to show up healthy. For all these great marathons he ran, there are an equal number of, as you said, maybe he didn't even get there because he wasn't healthy mm-hmm. or we didn't see him finish, especially late in the career. He is the biggest enigma among among our number one seeds, and I am knocking him off early. I have Rob DiCostella in the final four. Interesting. Our- I, I like your thinking on that, though, because Michele, if it weren't for Kipchoge during our current era, he would probably be considered the current greatest marathoner. We have yet to see him and Kipchoge line up because Bekele has not been healthy or have a performance like he is potentially capable of. Right. uh, Right. Yeah. Because of that inconsistency. Yeah. So in our final four, we're going to do this on the Paris marathon course for 2024. So we're assuming these guys are the only four on the line next year in Paris, a relatively hilly course out from Paris out to Versailles and back and with the potential of some heat. So hot and somewhat hilly are the conditions these guys are facing. We have very different final fours. You bring to the table Abebe Bakila, Paul Turgot, mm-hmm. Bill Rogers, and Kenanisa Bakele. Do you want to keep going head to head or do you just want to pick a winner out of the four? Let's have them all four race on that course and let's pick a winner out of it. Yeah, I like that. We'll put all four on the line. I have yeah. on the line in my race 
Sammy Wanjiru, Frank Shorter, Rob DiCastella, and Haile Gebre Selassie. So we have all four different, correct? Uh-huh. Our okay, final so four is totally different. This is fantastic. We can just set off. We'll do two races, two separate start <laughs> times, and we'll see who wins yours, and then we'll see who wins the the real race, which will be mine. Well, I'll let the A heat go first. The fat, the faster heat that I. I <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> In your race, Bakila, Turgot, Boston Bill Rogers, Kenanisa Bakele, who is your greatest marathoner of all time? Caveat in parentheses, non Kipchoge division. Despite the inconsistencies, I'm going to have to go with Bakele. Oh, my. Okay. <laughs> You're just banking on pure speed. Going on pure speed, as much hype as he gets for marathons that he ends up not even towing the line for, he's going to come into this Paris Marathon healthy with a nice long Why why do you say that? You have no idea. (laughs) Uh, People have been saying that. What's his uh, agent's name? Yas Hermans or whatever it is. He says that Uh like six weeks before every Bekele marathon. And then three weeks later, he's like, oh, it's been a rough training block. He's got a little niggle. Uh, (laughs) Your race is fascinating though, Phil, because these are like four very different runners. You might Mm -hmm. Say Rogers and Bekele are a a little bit more similar and Turgot and Bekele, but they're just very different. It's interesting the pick you made. I might have made an argument to pick him dead last among those four. Uh, (laughs) Turgot also being really good over cross, I think Mm -hmm. works on a hilly course. Bill Rogers certainly ran plenty of great hilly races and warm condition races at Boston. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I said I might pick Bekele last is, again, just the inconsistency. You're right. He has the talent. There's no question. He is the greatest marathoner non-Kipchoge by one metric, that's for sure. And that's just fastest time, uh, you know, personal best. The track speed of Bekele and Turgot going Mm -hmm. against the strength of Bill Rogers and Bekele. And I think Turgot and Bekele just leave Bekele and Bill Rogers early where they just can't stay in contact. Bekele just gradually nudges Turgot at the line. Mm. Would you, if we didn't make a bracket and didn't have these matchups and courses, would you pick Bekele as your best non-Kipchoge marathoner? Yes. That's an interesting, interesting. Purely based on time, though. Yeah, because well, because you you're so caught up in the metrics that you've never, and also you don't watch races, <laughs> so so you don't know what it's like to actually compete for these guys. Clearly, because I made him a one seed as your selection committee, I obviously have a great deal of respect for him, but I I wouldn't pick him. And it's interesting. The reason I say that as a segue is because I wouldn't pick my own winner if this weren't a bracket format, because in my bracket, I have Sammy Wanjiru, mm-hmm. Frank Shorter, Rob DiCastella, Haile Gebre Selassie. I think I'd pick Haile Gebre Selassie if I mm-hmm. didn't have a bracket and I was just pulling a guy out of my brain. But on an Olympic course with heat and hills, I can't go against Sammy Wanjiru because I saw him set an Olympic course record in scalding hot conditions in Beijing, when he went off the front and the announcers told me how crazy he was, Mm -hmm. and then he just squeezed down and made everyone suffer. And I've seen him get dropped time after time at Chicago and come back and just hang on. 
and yep. get dropped and hang on and get dropped and boom, make a move up a hill, that one hill at Chicago and take the race. This suits him. And so, I mean, I had him as a number two seed. So I don't know that, again, I, it's not my pick just outright without this bracket, but I have Sammy Wanjiru as the March Madness bracket champion, greatest marathoner of all time, non-Kipchoge division. You have Kenanisa Bekele next week. We will do this once again for the women. I enjoyed that, Phil. That was fun. Oh, that was fantastic. And, and what's interesting about the women's bracket, which I have given you already as well, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that it's quite as deep, but the top is perhaps deeper. Yeah. The, the first and second seeds might even be more evenly matched, all with a shot to win it. Maybe the fours aren't making a, a deep run, but uh, that'll be fun to to break that down next week as we wrap up March and the accompanying March Madness. Phil, before we go, we bid a fond farewell to the great Dick Fosbury. Fosbury passed last week at the age of 76. The 1968 Olympic high jump gold medalist transformed the sport with his back first Fosbury flop. I first met Dick over a decade ago, and he was such a kind man, a true gentleman of the sport, and really sad to, to lose him. He fought uh, cancer maybe 15 years ago and won that battle and lived a, a tremendous life. But even at 76, just it feels young. And, and I know when I, when I met him, and he was in his probably low to mid-60s at the time, he just seems so young and, and vibrant. And of course, with our athletic heroes, we only see the videos of them at, at a very young age. They, they don't age in the, the black and white videos on YouTube and in our memories and our minds. So Phil, in honoring Dick Fosbury's legacy, I ask you, did Dick Fosbury revolutionize his sport more than any other athlete in any sport? Controversial question. Hot take. Mm-hmm. You said that's what you're here for. Is he the most revolutionary athlete in his sport of all time? You know, thinking about that question, the only other athlete that immediately comes to mind would potentially be Tiger Woods. Mm. Just in terms of how he approached golf differently and brought it both to the masses, but also brought so much money into the sport as well. But as it relates to, you know, technique and what is considered the way to perform your sport, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think Fosbury takes the cake on that. With you know, him revolutionizing the Fosbury flop, it was something that was totally unorthodox at that time. Mm-hmm. And now it's a technique that everybody still continues to use. Tiger Woods is on my list as well, Phil. I think that's a good example. Uh, just a, a few other folks to think about. Perhaps Jackie Robinson in breaking the color barrier in Mm -hmm. baseball. Bo Jackson, his multi-sport transcendence, just incredible speed and power. In the world of basketball, I thought of two names, one who I don't consider anywhere near the best player, but someone who has certainly changed the sport. That's Steph Curry, the emphasis on the three-point shot over the past decade. And then before him, much earlier, Wilt Chamberlain, where we actually had to change the rules and widen the lane and what we call the key that actually used to look like a key. And Mm -hmm. now to 
try to mitigate, although it maybe wasn't completely successful, this, the dominance of Wilt Chamberlain, we actually changed the rules of the sport. So in that way, you know, changing the rules feels a bit more Fosbury-like. There might be something to, uh, as, as a swimming choice, Michael Phelps in simply his engagement from what seems like more of a niche sport, taking it, as you said, with Tiger Woods to the masses, how mm-hmm. we perceived watching him in the Olympics. But I could go through that list and tell you that those are great athletes who changed their sport, but none of them did more. Maybe one did as much to revolutionize how the sport is played. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Jackie Robinson comes the closest in eliminating the gatekeeping to the sport that totally changed the type of athlete who could come into it. Uh, but Dick Fosbury changed the sport itself for the better. We will we'll certainly miss uh, Dick. That's a great loss for the track and field world. With that, we will close mile 145. We will see you next time on mile 146 of Seconds Flat presented by Columbus Running Company and columbusrunning.com. Please email uh, secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. Any questions or show ideas, please subscribe, rate, and review Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. We will see everyone next time on Seconds Flat.